right, Deuteronomy chapter 12 is where we continue onward in our study in Deuteronomy. As we came into the 12th chapter last time, we went down as far as verse 7 or so. And as we come to this chapter now, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel on the border of the promised land, which they're about to enter into, and is encouraging them that as they got into the land, uh, that God's instruction and mandate of them was to basically utterly destroy uh, all of the uh, altars and images and sacred pillars of the people of the land of Canaan as they had all types of idolatrous practices that they performed in that land, the uh, Canaanite religions, whether it was Molech or Asherah or whatever it was, there were many different forms of idolatry and pagan worship that went on in that land, and God did not want his people in any way to be uh, prone in the weakness of their flesh or the deception of the devil to be drawn away from the worship of the one true and living God, and he exhorted them there in verse 4 of chapter 12 that they were not to worship the Lord their God with such things. So again, it was God's instruction to them uh, that they would not in any way, if you would incorporate the practices of other religions uh, or other forms of worship uh, into their spiritual lives of the one true and living God, that they were to worship God in truth, they were to worship God according to the way that he prescribed to be worshipped, and they weren't to sort of take things from the ways of the world, the patterns of the world, and try and incorporate some of those practices into what they would do in their worship of Jehovah God. And I think always just a, a very good reminder for all of us that we have to be careful, uh, that we never find ourselves becoming curious or trying to you know, create from a salad bar perspective our own ideology of how we're going to worship God or what spiritual life is to be about and rather than take the clear instruction given to us in the word of God that we think well you may, they, they kind of have some good ideas and what they do with that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and again we kind of like approaching a salad bar just sort of pick and choose what we want and begin to incorporate things and by all means that we would not look to the ways of the world uh, and, and pagan perspectives and try and bring those things into our Christian lives and into the church and in our lives of worship. I think one of the greatest probably detriments in some ways, certainly uh, in where we are at as uh, right now as the modern church is that in, in too many ways, um, we continue to be very curious about business practices and Madison Avenue techniques and so forth. And rather than the church being a family, a spiritual organism and, and, and something that is about a family dynamic that is spiritual and supernatural in too many ways uh, the body of Christ today I think is becoming way too curious about trying to operate the church like it's a business uh, and looking to marketing techniques and how do we you know obtain and retain customers and, and too many mentalities and models I think are built from a business perspective and I think it's a very dangerous and slippery slope when we begin to go down that. I'm not saying that we should not relate to people, that we should not be relevant. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, but we need to be careful that we don't begin to look to models of business practices and ideas of the world of how to operate the household of God and the family of God. This is not a business. This is not what the church is supposed to be. Uh, and it's a very dangerous place. And here's so God's warning his people. Look, when you go into that land, don't let the ways of the world around you, the Canaanite practices, be things that you're utilizing and pulling into what you're doing in their worship. Instead, he said that they were to seek the place that the Lord their God chose out of all their tribes to put his name, verse 5, for a dwelling place we saw. And he says, there you shall go and take your burnt offerings and the different types of sacrificial offerings that they would bring uh, to the Lord. So again, we'll see that in this chapter that God says, look, contrary to the practices of the Canaanites, they would worship on whatever hill they chose, high places, altars, different locations, and it was sort of somewhat of a free-for-all. You, you could sort of custom design what worked for you. Uh, that was how it went. And, and, and God said, no, there's an order. 
to how I do things. I'm God. Uh, and, and so he's telling them here, listen, I don't want this sort of just whatever you feel is right, whatever's right in your own eyes, God is going to say no, that there will be a place when you enter into the land that God will choose. Of course, we know for a few hundred years that will be Shiloh where the tabernacle was first set up uh, as they were traveling around in the wilderness. Ultimately, God would have them when they get into the land, they will set the tabernacle up at Shiloh at first, and that's where the tabernacle will then reside. And then, of course, ultimately in the days of David, uh, David will then bring the tabernacle and set it up in Jerusalem, of course, the ultimate, if you would, spiritual headquarters, quote-unquote, for Israel and for the Jews, and that's, of course, then where the ultimate physical permanent temple would be built there in Jerusalem as well, and, and it would be that place where they were to gather and to assemble and to continue to congregate there. So God is now giving them instruction of how they were to order their worship lives according to how he chose, which was that there was one place where they were to assemble together and gather once they had sort of taken occupation of the land. So verse 8, we continue on where we left off. He says to them in that respect, you shall not at all, he says, do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to rest the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit it, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell safely, then, he says, there will be, it's emphasized multiple times in the chapter here, like us, in case they missed the point, God's, God reinforces it a few times, there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So, again, God here emphasizing that there would be a place, a locality for the Israelites to assemble regularly, to gather together collectively for times of worship. And, again, let me say in light of that, you know, there's something about that is very beautiful because, keep in mind, as they journey through the wilderness, as we've been watching them for 40 years, Basically, during the time of their journeys in the wilderness, they kind of functioned like a, uh, you know, like a tent city, or, or I mean, if we could use maybe a more modern illustration, almost like a, a a camp of refugees in some senses. They moved through the wilderness, and they were always together. And they always had that tent, and when they moved from location to location, they took the tabernacle with them, and they would set it up in the new location, but they dwelt together. We've seen this. They dwell together. When they get into the land, they're going to be scattered all throughout the land. God's already told them they're going to get different tribal portions and different allotted territories, the 12 tribes. So God very beautifully now begins to set forth this pattern and say, look, when you get into the land... You're going to be separated from one another. You're going to be scattered in different territories. But it is my heart as your God that you would regather systematically, that you would come together with regularity, and that you would assemble together in unity for times of worship. And of course, particularly during the times of the ordained feasts, particularly those three major feasts, Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, as well as some of the other feasts. And God's, in a sense, emphasizing, I want you to regather Yes, you're going to live separate lives. Some of you are going to be up here in the northern part of Israel. Some of you in the southern part of Israel. You're going to live in different places. You're going to work your fields in different locations. But it is my heart that you regularly and systematically reassemble and regather yourselves for worship and instruction and for times of edification spiritually. And I think it's a very beautiful pattern God begins to set forth because it is the pattern that God still wants for us even as Christians, even as he wanted for the children of Israel, that we are to as well. Yes, we live separately. Yes, we're not together continuously. We don't live together you know, collectively 24-7. That probably wouldn't be good for some of us, quite frankly. <laughs> Maybe it's good we only see each other once or twice a week. Uh, but we live in different locations, you know, we live in different maybe communities, we work our jobs, we go about our day-to-day -day affairs, but it is the heart of God that his people, his children, gather together regularly, that we regather, that we assemble on regular occasions to come together for worship. And in a unified way to worship the Lord and offer him our praise and receive spiritual instruction, edification. The writer of Hebrews says it very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10. He says that we are not 
to forsake the assembling together of ourselves. And he says, as some are in the manner of doing. And he says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The concept being that as we see the latter days, the end times drawing to a close, the injunction there of the Holy Spirit is this instruction becomes all the more important as it gets closer to the return of Jesus Christ. As the days get darker and the world gets more brazen and immoral and lawlessness abounds, God is saying it's going to become more critical that the people of God do not say, oh, I don't need to, I just, I have God in my Bible. I like Jesus. I hate the church. I don't need Christian. Fe-. God says, no, that is going to be very dangerous because you're going to live in a world where you're going to get beat up 24-7 and you're going to face the challenges and temptations. It is critical that we assemble together to worship the Lord, to be edified, to be reassured and to be encouraged and built up from one another. Even as God's people were told to here, we're called to as Christians to do the same. And you know, I, I tell you, I, I, I'm glad you come out on Wednesday night. Do you want to know why? Because I need somewhere to go on a Wednesday night. I'd be really bummed if I didn't have a church to go to on Wednesday night. You know, this is important for us as God's people that we are able to assemble together. And so here God is now beginning to put this pattern in place for Israel as they go into the land and are separated in a way geographically and occupationally that they could come together spiritually, meet in this place where the tabernacle and then the temple would be to spend time together. And and notice that very interesting injunction there in verse 8. I think it's beautiful because it becomes a very key phrase throughout Israel's history. He says, you shall not do as we are doing here today. Look at the phrase there, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That becomes a phrase where here God is saying, he's cautioning in advance, let us not begin to do where every man does whatever is right in his own eyes. God says that is the beginning of a real prescription for problems. When every man begins to do what is right in his own eyes. Well, according to my perspective, I think this is what's right. And according to your perspective, you do what you think is right. And whether it's spiritually or whether it's morally in whatever way, that is always a very dangerous thing when a group of people nationally or society or spiritually begins to just do what's right in their own eyes rather than what is right in the eyes of the Lord. What's his perspective on things? And of course, we know that this then becomes sort of the, you know, the theme phrase in the book of Judges ultimately, where it ultimately says there in a day when Israel, remember, was at its lowest point morally and spiritually and the nation remember was just going through cycles where they would you know you know turn away from god and so then god would pull back if he would his protective hedge and he'd let them become vulnerable and then whether it was the midianites or the philistines they would be conquered and they would be oppressed and they would collapse economically and militarily and they would be oppressed and ruled over by foreign nations and then they would cry out to God when the nation was falling apart and then God would send them a deliverer and he would be merciful to them and they would do good for a while and then maybe the deliverer would die or pass off the scene and they would go right back to the same practice. And there was that constant cycle among them as a nation and the coined phrase in that book that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's always a very, very destructive thing to any nation, to any culture, to any people group. And listen, look at our current generation. If there is not a statement that is beginning to define more and more and more and more, even the United States of America right now, what is there? That basically we have people who not only live that way, But we have even people who are in places of leadership and major voices and governing our nation as kings and those in authority who are basically presenting the message of what would be best for us all if we just let everybody do what is right in their own eyes. Let's not anybody say one thing is right, one thing is wrong. Let's not have any absolute truth. And and on the bill of tolerance and acceptance, there should be no moral standards. You know, everyone should just be able to do whatever's right in their own eyes. Uh, and, And to make it more tragic, we just don't have a people who are doing that. Unfortunately, we have a president and leaders who are, in a sense, encouraging that motto for our culture. 
Uh, and we see where that unfolds historically because it became the downfall of Israel. And here God forewarning them in advance saying, be careful of everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For he says, you haven't yet come to the land, but when you cross over, he says, there's going to be a place, he tells them, verse 11, that the Lord your God chooses. Again, don't choose for yourself. Always best to let God choose. And it will be a place where he'll make his name abide. And there, he says, verse 11, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings. Again, the offerings of consecration to dedicate your life to God, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand and all your choice offerings, which you vow to the Lord. So again, ultimately, there would be this one place. Now, again, they were in the promised land. We don't live in a promised land. We're not the Jews. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the covenant of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we experience a promised life. Uh, so again, the pattern was in that land, in the promised land, they had a place. We don't necessarily have a place, but we have a person who the Bible begins to tell us as the days of Jesus unfold in the same way they had one place that they were in a sense prescribed as the one way to worship God. Jesus comes on the scene and says, yeah, that's true. The pattern remains. There is one way to worship God. There is one way to have right relationship with God and that is through a person. Ultimately, Jesus in John chapter 4 will even begin to discuss this. The woman at the Samaritan well, remember this was the dialogue between them. She said to Jesus, that woman, our fathers worshipped on this mountain where the Samaritans would say they should worship. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. And then he says this, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So ultimately Jesus will begin to convey this transition of listen, for a time, yes, for the Jews, it was about a place. But the bigger thing was there's one way and it's God's way. And God sets the terms on how he'll be approached and how he's to be worshipped because he's God. And Jesus says there's coming a time and now is, now that he was around, he says, when it's not going to be about the place, the location geographically, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, but it is going to be about worshipping God in spirit and in truth. And ultimately, Jesus will say in John 14, what? I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That it would be through the exclusive person of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we could have relationship with him. And that if we want to approach God, that is the way the Bible says is the narrow way. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that, that go in. And he said, it narrows the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. And that narrow way is the way of Jesus. It's coming to God through the understanding that I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the only savior, the one who came from heaven to this earth, lived the perfect life free of sin that we don't live as a man being fully God and fully man, satisfying the requirements of God against sinful humanity and then dying sacrificially in our place, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and raising again from the dead so that he can now be the one mediator between God and men and it's the man, Christ Jesus. And so we now begin to understand and see how God, again, was laying out this pattern, this idea already from the days of old with Israel beginning to, be in, to, to lay that out, picturing ultimately, of course, what he would do with his son Jesus. So here, God's giving Israel this clear instruction where they're to go. There was an order to this. They couldn't just set up their own system of worship. And he tells them as well, verse 12, as a part of their worship, he says, when you bring your offerings and so forth to the place where my name will abide, where the presence of God was, he says, verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God you and your sons and your daughters your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates since he has no portion or inheritance with you and again take note we'll see this word appear a few times there verse 12 God continuously says in relationship to their worship and you shall rejoice uh, 
And it's almost as if God is purposely bringing this to pass. Is, is worship to be something of reverence? Yes. We're to be reverent. We're to stand in all of God. He is an awesome God and we should be reverent. We should always be respectful. But at the same time, God says worship is to be something that is to be a measure of rejoicing. It's celebrating who God is. It's celebrating the goodness of God. It's celebrating the greatness of God and celebrating what God has done for us in our lives. So again and again, he says here, as he gives instruction about worship, he says, listen, you should be rejoicing. That's what worship is. Worship is you should be rejoicing in God, that as they came with their offerings, that they should be celebrating the Lord. And, you know, as we worship the Lord, the New Testament tells us the same. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, Paul says. Again, I say rejoice. It's almost as if Paul says, again, I'm going to say it because I think you might not have heard me the first time. And, and, and so he says, again, I say rejoice. And again, we rejoice in the Lord. We have something to rejoice in, thankfully. Despite the world we live in, we can rejoice in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, no matter what our day has been, what our week is like, or what's going on in our lives. So verse 13, he then says, and take heed, so pay attention to yourself, guard yourself, that you do not offer, God says, your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but, again, the emphasis, in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes... There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I command you. So again, talk about repetition. That's probably the third time already in this chapter we've seen the exact same thing. So when someone seems repetitious on occasion, so is God. So you know, I know sometimes I can sound repetitious, but so is God. <laughs> uh, and God here for the third time already states again, don't offer your offerings and do those things whatever place you see, but in the place that I've chosen. Now, again, I think what God is trying to indicate again there in verse 13, don't do it in the place that you see. The idea is God saying, don't just be led by what you feel in the moment. Oh, I, I, just, I feel like this. I just really feel like this is the right place. And right now, and this is the God says, no, in worship, I don't want you to be led by impulse. I don't want you to just be led by what you feel in the moment. And sometimes there can be a great danger, not that God hasn't created our feelings, but the Bible says the just shall live by faith, not by feelings. And we need to be careful. Can God utilize and work through our feelings? Yes. But we need to be careful that we don't just always respond according to feelings alone. We are people who live by faith and obedience to God and to his word. And there may be times where our feelings are not on track. And we may have a certain strong inclination or feel led to do this or feel led to do that. And we need to be sensitive to the fact that just because I feel led or because I see something that I want to do or seems interesting to me, we need to be careful to weigh that out and to make sure well, no, that my feelings alone and what I see isn't what should drive me. Instead, I should be someone who walks in faith and obedience to the truth of God and the commands of God. What has God chosen? What does his word say? Again, this is the whole concept of order even in the New Testament as Paul has to address with the Corinthian church. And a lot of the problem in the Corinthian church and even where they were a very spiritual church open to the gifts of the spirit is Paul realized they needed some order. And so Paul gave them scriptural order and said, look, it's great you want to be open to the ministry of the spirit, but God's also a God of decency and order. And there are prescribed parameters that they were, yes, to be open to the Spirit, but they were to let the Word of God and its commands order, okay, how does prophecy work? How does speaking in tongues work? And how should it operate in a meeting and in an assembly? And, and there, Corinthians, Paul, in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, gives purposeful instruction, again, so that the worship's not driven by just emotion alone but by the clear prescription of what the scripture and the commands of God are as well. And so God here gives them a reminder of that very thing. He says, verse 15, however, you may slaughter and eat meat, he says, within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Now, what God begins to get into here in verse 15 and, and moving onward here is now God begins to describe, listen, I'm not putting a prohibition upon eating meat or, or having a barbecue. Again, in, in, as they traveled throughout the wilderness, typically whenever they had an animal and the animal was put to death sacrificially, the priest had to be involved 
in the sacrifice of that animal. And God is saying, here, listen, when you get into the land, you don't have to call a priest every time you want to have a barbecue. You know, if, if you want to have an animal, you, you, know, you, you shoot uh, you know, uh, Buck Rogers out there in the wilderness and get yourself a deer and you're okay, I got a deer and I want to feed my family and have a bar. You don't have to call a priest every time you want to just have a meal. He says, look, if it's a sacrifice under the Lord, that's one thing. But God had given them the freedom to be able to partake of meat and to share of food. So he's just delineating between the two. So there's not this, you know, hyper spirituality that somehow everything, you know, has to be taken to this intense degree. He says, look, when you slaughter and eat meat within your gates, according to your heart, if you want to have a barbecue, God, you can have a barbecue every day if you want, God says. If you want to eat meat and share in meat, you're free to do that. If it's just for a meal, and that's all it is, if it's not a sacrifice, the instruction, verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. So as has been instructed before, they were to have respect for the blood. God wanted them to have reverence for life. Uh, again, Leviticus 17 spoke of how the life of the flesh is in the blood and God had given blood for the atonement for their souls. So God wanted them as a people to have a respect for life to have a respect for blood because blood would be the way whereby God would provide atonement for sin. So he says, look, all I'm asking is that when you do eat, if you have a, a barbecue, a meal of some animal, a deer, a gazelle, whatever, that you would just properly bleed the animal, pour out its blood uh, like water, he says, and you may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil of the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your offerings which you vow. Again, these are spiritual offerings or of your free will offerings or the heave offerings of your hand, but you must eat them. Again, if these were things dedicated as offerings to the Lord, eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant and the Levite who is within your gate. And again, he reiterates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. In verse 19, take heed to yourself and that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. So again, this was because God had an order and part of that order God said was is that when they did bring their offerings, again, as we've talked about, part of those offerings were what supplemented and supported the Levites and the priests as they served as ministers on God's behalf to be able to be partaken of. So this was important that they honor God's design for multiple reasons. Verse 20, And when the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised, and you say, Let me eat meat because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. I think that should be a plaque on my kitchen wall. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm a carnivore. I, I just like, I'm going to memorize that verse. In fact, I was pondering that this afternoon. Let me eat meat because you long to eat meat. You may eat as much meat as your heart desires. So praise the Lord for that. Absolutely. That's a great Bible verse. Verse 21, if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I've commanded you, and may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires, he says, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Again, ceremonial uncleanness didn't matter if they were just partaking of a meal. This wasn't a sacrificial meal there at the tabernacle or the temple at the altar. Only, again, verse 3, the injunction, only be sure that you do not eat the blood for the blood is the life and you may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So again, the strong exhortation and instruction from the Lord to be reverent in their handling of the blood of the animal. That, that animal, whether it was put to death for sacrifice and offering, whether it was put to death even just for a meal, God's clear instruction because he's wanting to drive home to them the value and the appreciation to have reverence for life and that the life of the flesh is in the blood. We, we understand that. We understand now today as creatures, you know, scientifically that it is the blood and the circular story system that carries the, the oxygen, the nutrients, what is necessary to sustain life. And God wanted them to not have a casual or a flippant attitude, but to realize that when an animal dies, 
you know that that's you know that death is something that supplies life and of course all of this was just to begin to give them a greater reverence because it would be as leviticus 17 said blood that would be the very thing that would provide atonement for their souls and god wanted them to realize as we've talked about before when an animal would be sacrificed when they'd bring their sin offering to the temple and i know we look at that today well, oh my goodness that's just so disgusting some go hallelujah thank goodness they're not animal sacrifices anymore and my favorite thing about jesus is we're not sacrificing animals anymore you know and it just seems to some so graphic and and morbid and but listen part of that was purposeful because when you took an animal an innocent animal up to the altar and you watched or in some cases participated by helping to hold the knife together with the priest and you slit the throat of this innocent animal and you watched it go through the death process, the jolting and the blood pouring out. There was something very powerful that was driven home to your heart where you realized because I was sinful and selfish, this is what's happening to an innocent substitute this animal is having to suffer and die because of what i did and it was a very vivid picture that sin costs something and and it took away a little bit of the triviality and the casualty of just well whatever a big deal i just you know, i'll just ask for forgiveness because you realize what forgiveness costs and as you watch that animal go through that process it really came home to your heart very powerfully bloodshed and death and what was required and what sin cost and what was necessary. And see, I, there's a part of that, that that is part of the reason why, listen, that we can never begin to diminish the reality of talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we have to remember something as the Lamb of God and the blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and our opportunity to have relationship with God and approach him freely and have eternal life, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The Lamb of God without spot or blemish that, that was shed for us Jesus' life. Let us always remember, listen, it was not Jesus' life or his teachings or his miracles that provided the forgiveness of sins for us. It was Jesus' death and it was his blood as a man who suffered brutally and died sacrificially that gives to you and I the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. For every wrong thing we've done, every selfish act and behavior, wrong thought, wrong word, wrong deed, everything we've done in our past, and even the stupid selfish things that we still sometimes do, that we would never lose reverence and awareness of, wow, Lord, Help me never to forget. Help me never to think it casual that grace is wonderful. But grace isn't cheap. It's a wonderful thing. And it's free to me, but it was not free to someone else. Someone else paid a great cost that the Father let His Son die in that way and that Jesus laid down as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, His life in such a way. So here again, th these are the reasons you see this reverence God wanted them to have for blood as He began to institute these things with ancient Israel that they would not do what was right in their own eyes, but they were to do what was right. It says there, verse 25, in the sight of the Lord, the exact opposite. Lord, what's right in your sight? Verse 26, on the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured on the altar of the Lord your God and you shall eat the meat. Again, remember it was like a, a communal meal. You ate a portion of the meat, a portion was burned on the altar. The idea was like having a meal with God. That was the, the concept of fellowship as they bring their sacrifices. Observe, he says, verse 28, and obey all these words which I command you that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right right in the sight of the Lord your God. You notice the repetition there again of not doing what's right in your own eyes, but there we see it repeated a few times in our recent verses, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. And God says, when you do that, it will go well with you and it will go well with your family and the dynamic of your children and your household. Listen, do you want to have a good life? 
Do you want to have a good family life? God says, there it is. Do what's good and right in the sight of the Lord. Let it not be, well, from my perspective, I think this is okay. From what my kids want, from their perspective, this is what makes them happy. You know, from what, no, what does the Lord say? What's the Lord's perspective? When the Lord looks at the situation, our heart needs to be, Lord, how do you see this situation? And what would please you? And what would you be able to look upon with acceptance and with pleasure? Lord, we want to do what's good and right in your sight. And God says that is the life that leads to it going well with us and experiencing God's best, his blessing that he wants us to experience. Verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and then dwell in their land. Again, take heed to yourself, God says, that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, hmm, curiosity here. How did these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord which he hates pretty strong words, they have done to their gods. And then he emphasizes, for they burn even, that's the key word, they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So again, God points out that they were to be careful of, and this is what these verses are saying, a curiosity spiritually, where they would say, hmm, I mean, I know we have our Jehovah God thing, but how did they do their thing? I mean, and how exactly did they worship their gods and, and, and kind of this spiritual curiosity which can take over all of us. We're a very curious people. That's why you can't drive by an auto accident without wanting to take a peek. Okay, we're, we're a very curious people. We're na- and, and that can be a very dangerous thing spiritually. We have to be careful. And sometimes whether it's other religions, you know, uh, Christian cults, pseudo-Christian cults, sometimes like the children of Israel, we, we can have this inquisitive, well, what, exa- what exactly did they do and what did they believe and how did they go about it? And sometimes our curiosity can be something that ensnares us if we're not careful. Listen, I understand at times being aware of maybe what other people believe if we want to be apologetic and win them to Christ and understand so we can lovingly relate and, and have a basis of understanding. But more than one, naive child of God has gotten curious about some other way of worship and has found themselves then in that weakness ensnared and caught into something and deviated and gone off track. So be careful. God's warning them here of spiritual curiosity. He says, listen, the things that they're doing, they are things that are very detrimental that you might get ensnared in And he mentions verse 31, I mean, the abomination of the things that they were doing, even, again, in their worship of Molech, where they would heat up a molten statue to red-hot metal, and then they would literally place their infant children on the scalding-hot metal statue and literally watch their children be burned and, and, and melt and as they screeched and screamed, there would be drums beating and you know high screaming. And, and this was a part of the worship of Molech, a, a god that was considered to be a god of pleasure and fertility. And they believed that as they did this, that Molech then would give them increased pleasure and greater fertility as they actually made these child sacrifices. Now, again, we look at that and we almost in chagrin go, oh my gosh, how could a people sing to that level. I mean, how could a people do such a thing? But listen, I think we need to be careful because their worship of pleasure led to unwanted pregnancies. And then with those unwanted pregnancies, that worship of pleasure was then disposed of as they would dispose of their children in an effort to be able to have greater pleasure and more of what they wanted for their own personal pleasures. And in much the same way, we may think it's in a very dignified way that we don't do things in the way that they would do that, we are guilty of doing much the same. Uh, We may do it from a different perspective, but our worship of pleasure and our worship of sex and worshiping the same idols, 
leads in our country as well to many unwanted pregnancies that then unfortunately end up in children being sacrificed and lives being lost in order for the pleasure of those who now have an unwanted pregnancy. And again, listen, I, I understand in a room even th the size of this evening, I, please don't in any way take that as a condemnation if you've had an abortion. Look, there's forgiveness in Christ. And the blood of Jesus cleanses anything and everything that we have all done. And I believe that there is a reunion awaiting you in heaven and that you, know, that you need to recognize that there's forgiveness and healing in that. And I'm sure you would be the first to testify to anyone else. Listen, please don't live that lie. You have no idea the trauma, that pain that that causes emotionally when someone is participating in that. But we in our country are doing much the same. And here God is showing that when a people, a nation, as the Canaanite nations, had sunk to the lowest degree, that this was one of the marks of it. That one of the marks of it was that the most dangerous place in a society is not in a really rough city, and it's not on a foreign land in a battlefield. Do you know where the most dangerous place in the United States of America is? It is the time between conception and birth. That is the most dangerous place, the most threatening place for any human life because there are more lives lost there through that process of the aborting of pregnancies than in murders in cities, lost life on foreign battlefields, murders, drunk driving. That's the most dangerous place. And this is a mark of when a nation has really began to sank to its lowest degree. And we need to remember these things. Remember these things as a society. Remember these things as we're praying. Remember this as causes that we should take interest in. And even I think as we vote, as it's an election year, to remember these kind of things. He says, verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So again, a repeated instruction God's mentioned many times. Again, guarding the inerrancy of his word, the sufficiency. God says, don't add to my words. Don't take away from my words. God's words to stand for what it is. It may not always be what we like to hear. It may not always be what we agree with logically or mentally. It may not be what accommodates our preference or our lifestyle, but God tells the children of Israel, listen, my word is to be obeyed. It's not to be altered. It's not to be questioned, it's not to be changed, it's not to be challenged or to say, hey, well, that fit for this generation, but it doesn't fit for ours or it doesn't work for the lifestyle that I want to have. God says, no, whatever I command, he says, observe it and don't add to it. Don't add anything additional that it doesn't say. Be careful of that. You know, we begin to add our convictions and God says, that's your conviction. But there's nowhere that says that in scripture. We have to be careful of that. And God says, don't take away from my word. Don't try and alter it and say, well, you know, that part doesn't apply or it's not inspired or it doesn't you know, in any way have application to the current day I'm in. Chapter 13, he says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and he says, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you've not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, God says, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God continuing now, again, no chapter breaks here, addresses the danger of being misled by a false prophet or a false spiritual worker. He mentions here in our first few verses, if there arises, again, among the people of Israel, a prophet or some person who claims to have dreams and maybe even their prophecy or their dream comes true. Look what he says. Maybe they're a miracle and he gives you a sign or a wonder, some miraculous supernatural sign or wonder. And he then says, verse two, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. The idea is that there's genuine power. There's something supernatural. They claim some prophecy and the prophecy comes to pass or they're able to work some supernatural wonder in some way whereby an actual miracle happens of some sort. There is a definite supernatural power, and yet after that happens, the miracle happens, but then the message is let us go and worship and serve some other god. Let us go worship this god, or let us follow after that god. The Lord declares here, listen, when that happens... He says, you cannot allow yourself to be driven 
by your fascination of the miraculous, if the message is wrong, it does not matter how miraculous the person may seem. It does not matter how authentic they may seem. It does not matter, what, what, but, they, but they predicted something and it actually came to pass. Or they actually you know, were able to heal somebody. I mean, it was, it was a miracle. Again, Jesus cautioned and warned himself, even as the church in our day and age of the same, when he said false Christ, Matthew 24, and false prophets will rise, and listen to what Jesus said, and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. We saw as we went through our study in 2 Thessalonians, where there, 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according with, listen, the working of Satan. How does Satan work? With all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So again, the Bible teaches that there is genuine supernatural power in the demonic realm. That the working of Satan, the working of the demonic realm, you know, those who are into you know, mediums and channeling spirits, listen, there is, there is authentic power in that stuff. There is dark, genuine, supernatural power, certainly not to match the power of God, but there is a measure of supernatural wickedness and power in those things. And do you not think that the devil would not use such things to woo and fascinate people who are in awe of something, wow, they told my fortune and it came to pass, or they, to then call someone to let their guard down and become vulnerable spiritually to say, this person, I've got to believe them. Wow, look what they said. And he says here, look, it does not matter what comes to pass. If their message is wrong, let us go after another God and serve another God. The idea is in any way to turn away from the one true and living God, he says, you shall not listen to their words of that prophet or dreamer for the Lord is testing you to see whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He said, God's looking to see, are you going to be loyal to him? Are you going to just be awe and inspired because of something that seems impressive? Or are you going to say, no, anything or anyone that tries to pull me away from God, I refuse it. I won't let anything take my loyalty away. Again, I want to say to you this evening, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, the, the ministry of the Spirit, the miraculous, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, and word of knowledge, and word of wisdom, and prophetic words, and dreams, and visions. Listen, these are all legitimate, genuine things. And let's not cast out the baby with the bathwater. We need to be open to these things. These are legitimate, real things. We have a wonder-working, powerful God. But we need to realize that there is a devil who is a deceiver and there is always going to be imitation and efforts of duplication to try and dupe and deceive people who are vulnerable spiritually. And the basis of our truth must always be the word of God because this is what's valid. This is what doesn't change. So he says here, verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandment and obey his voice you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet, verse 5, or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away, he says, the evil from your midst. So you, we read that, wow, that's severe. Do you see that? I mean, please take note. In ancient Israel, according to the law, for the Jews, they, it was a capital crime. If someone, as some prophet or dreamer of dreams, sought to pull people, God's children, the Jews, away from Jehovah God, God says that person is so dangerous, that is so evil, that God says they're to be put to death. It was a capital crime. That is the same capital crime as murder in Israel, kidnapping. If you stole a child in Israel, it was a capital crime. You were put to death. It makes total sense to me because if you deceive someone and lead them away from God spiritually, what have you done? You've kidnapped one of God's children. And God said, therefore, the severity of that was necessary 
to put away the evil from their midst. That phrase will be repeatedly used throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Watch as God speaks at times of the need to put away spiritual evil because of the danger of how destructive that was. And that ultimately will even be the verse that Paul then utilizes in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks from a New Testament perspective of how at times there's a need even for church discipline. And at times to deal with things within a local church where there may be a need to put out a person from the fellowship collectively and the assembly of God's people because they are so dangerous in a way whereby they can cause hurt or harm or propagate their cancer and evil that there's a time to put away evil from the midst. But again, you know, we look at that and think, wow, I mean, that seems really severe. And listen, please don't, we don't live in the promised land. Don't go stoning people. Don't come to the next, you know, uh, believers meeting and somebody shares a prophecy and you don't like it and you pull a pocket of stones out and throw it. No, we don't do that anymore, okay? We don't live in the promised land. We walk in the promised life of the Spirit. But we see the heart of God that at times the goodness and the severity of God says sometimes evil must be dealt with in a way that is severe for the safety and the welfare of all the rest of the people. And I take note of this that the thing that God was very severe was those who would destroy the, and bring detriment to the relationship between God and his people. God says that is more dangerous than even any other thing. You know, to me, I've always found this unique and, and I need to end on this topic, but, but I want to say this because sometimes these kind of things unfold. It's always concerned me in the church where on occasion, you know, the things that we will become alarmed with, or let me even use this as, as a final example. Let's say, for example, a, a pastor falls into moral failure. Let's say they commit adultery, they you know, cheat on their spouse, they have a you know, sexual sin, or maybe they steal money from the church or something. And in those situations, there's times and occasions where, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, that's moral failure. Mo moral failure. I mean, he, he needs to resign. We, 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 he needs to resign. Moral failure. What always perplexes me is how we champion for sexual sin or moral failure, money, something like that, those are reasons that somebody's not safe to lead a congregation. But yet some ministers do some really off-the-wall stuff spiritually and begin to deviate spiritually and somehow people don't see that as, as dangerous and destructive and say, ah, well, I mean, he never cheated on anybody and he didn't steal money, so we have no real reason to be too severe in the situation. I say... Are you kidding me? What's more destructive? Isn't it more destructive when somebody who has spiritual influence over a people that are following the leadership and the teaching and the spiritual direction and if they're beginning to let people under their leadership be led in a way where they're being deviated spiritually because of wrong doctrine or wrong spiritual leadership to me, from what I see, God says that's a way more severe danger and should be dealt with way more severely. I think we need to recognize these things and, and, and be prayerful about them and realize that, look, some of the times the things that we think are the biggest threats to our nation, to our families, to our church, a lot of times I think the devil's actively working and we're missing the point here. The devil's saying, what's really the most dangerous? Because if people are snatched away to follow other gods or walk away from God, that's eternally destructive. That's spiritually damaging and destructive, which to me is way, way more critical. Let's pray. Father.